welcome to another episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. And we do that with industry executives, entrepreneurs, investors, athletes, faculty members from Columbia. And, of course, I do it every week with my partner, Joe Favorito. Welcome, Joe. Hello, Tom. It's Legends Week again. We continue on with the second in a row, for sure. Oh, my God. Yeah, we had Harvey uh, Schiller last time, which... um, by the time this podcast comes out, everybody will have a chance to listen to, and we highly recommend that. But I think this one's going to be as good, maybe even better, because we've got a, a distinguished member of the sports community and the Columbia family, and that is Neil Pilson, uh, a familiar name to many of you. Neil has been in the business for a long time, uh, best known in the business as the president of CBS Sports, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, And for those of you who are involved in academia, you know that Neil's been involved with the Columbia Sports Management Program for quite some time and is one of the uh, highly respected instructors here in the program, and we count him among our distinguished colleagues. So welcome, Neil, to the show. Nice to be with you. And I have to add one more resume point, Neil, that I just forgot. This is my first time, uh, or our first time for me and Joe having been doing uh, this for now two years, that we're interviewing someone from my alma mater undergraduate, Hamilton College, uh, and that's a special treat because it's a relatively small school with a somewhat limited alumni network, particularly in the sports business. So Neil and I are kindred spirits. Uh, We promised Joe not to tell any of those Hamilton stories because it would take too long, Uh, but uh, it's a good reference point for for me and Neil always. So, Neil, let's start off with a – kind of your story. As you know, you've listened to some of these podcasts. The career journeys of our guests are always one of the most interesting things to to hear, uh, especially for the young people trying to build their careers in this business. So tell tell the Neil Pilsen story, and then we'll get into uh, some of the things you're working on now, some of your thoughts about the industry and and teaching and and the like. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Pretty normal childhood. uh, No interest in sports or sports television other than uh, playing a lot of different sports. I played high school and college basketball. Uh, But I ended up uh, in the sports uh, business in a a somewhat unusual way, but still kind of a logical uh, progression. And let me explain that. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, I graduated from Hamilton College. Uh, I didn't have a clear career path. But I had eliminated a lot of different options while at college. I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor. I wasn't going to be an accountant. Uh, I wasn't going to be an educator. Uh, And I was left with basically one option, which was going to law school. Uh, I had done well in the various courses that lead up to law school, English and government and history. And it seemed like uh, uh, the thing to do Uh, at the time most of us went directly to graduate school from college, which is not the case today, but back in the day, and we're talking 60 years ago, I'm afraid, 55, 60 years ago, that's what a lot of us did. We went on to medical school or postgraduate work directly from college. So I went on to Yale Law School, uh, spent three years there. Uh, It took me quite a while to figure out what law school was all about, And when I graduated, uh, the best option was to go uh, to work for a small law firm in New York City. Uh, Had nothing to do with sports, nothing to do with broadcasting, 
I was basically a commercial practice. Uh, I was there for six years, and sad to say, I found it somewhat boring. Uh, I was doing commercial agreements, trademark work, uh, a lot of uninteresting stuff. Uh, And I had an opportunity uh, to join a, a television entertainment company in their law department. And what happened was I was working in politics, which is a strange way to advance your business career, but uh, one of the gentlemen I was working with was an executive at a company called Metromedia, which owned several television stations around the country. And for those with a historical interest, those were the stations that eventually ended up as the Fox stations. Uh, I joined Metromedia, and I worked in their entertainment division Uh, which produced shows for network television, shows like the Jacques Cousteau series, uh, National Geographics, uh, quite a few movies of the week. And in that capacity, uh, negotiating television agreements with the broadcast networks, I met just about all of the principal executives working at CBS, ABC, and NBC, And by the way, those were the only three networks at the time. Uh, And perhaps you can see where this career path is is going to take me. Uh, Six years after joining Metromedia, I had an opportunity to go to CBS Sports uh, as their head of business affairs, which, interesting enough, was pretty much the same job I was doing at Metromedia, except that now I was focusing almost uh, totally on sports agreements rather than uh, entertainment agreements, uh, the right to put sports agreements, sports events on network television, and I was working for the network. Uh, I took that job in uh, going back quite a ways, July 1976. And then a whole bunch of things happened while I was at CBS Sports, and perhaps that would be the subject of another question. Uh, And five years after joining CBS Sports at the rather – tender age of 41, I was asked to become the president of the sports division. A whole bunch of stories resulting from that experience, again, good fodder for uh, follow-up questions. And uh, I was at CBS until 1995 when uh, a number of different things happened, and uh, the company and I decided that it was time to do something different. So I left the company after 20 years at CBS, started my own consulting, sports consulting company, since I had so many contacts within the sports industry. And basically, I have been in the consulting business since 1995, which is almost 23 years. Uh, And that brings you up to the present day. And then when did you get involved in teaching? Ah, Well, 10 years ago, uh, I was asked uh, by the uh, then head of the Columbia uh, Sports Management Department, which I think was only one year old at the time, if I would consider teaching a course, and he came up with the idea of leadership skills, uh, which apparently had, I don't think, ever been taught in graduate programs. And the focus that uh, I have Uh, used over the 10 years is that leadership is a a, uh, 
It's an attitude. It's a business. It's a it's a position that can be learned. It is not genetic. It's not uh, simply that you have good looks or come from the right school or the right family. Leadership skills can be taught in the classroom, can be learned by students, and uh, they involve a whole range of, of behavior and skills that when you put it all together, uh, you put yourself in a position to be asked or selected to become a leader. We don't volunteer in our business. Uh, you're picked. And uh, the course focuses on a wide range of skills that uh, you, can, uh, you can pick up, you can be taught, you can learn them. And uh, once you have them, uh, your level of confidence grows dramatically. And it is that level of confidence that is so important uh, to ultimately become a leader. And that's the course I've been teaching for 10 years. I, I refresh it every year with uh, inter interesting events and people that uh, uh, literally jump off the sports pages and from time to time the front pages of, of our media. And uh, that's my focus. Uh, basically, the premise is leadership is a behavior and a skill set that can be taught and learned by students. Amazing. Um, let's go back and some of the things you just touched on, Neil, before we kind of, and we'll get to the leadership stuff down the road. But so when you get to CBS um, and, you know, everyone knows the famous stories of the NBA being on tape delay. But one of the things that, that I guess that the positive, amazing legacy of Neil Pilsen will be is how that event in March with the college basketball called March Madness, something like that, came to be because you were obviously there for the idea and kind of gave rise to where it is today. How, how did March Madness, when you were at CBS, came to come along and, and how did it get to where it is today? Okay, let me answer that question, but then go back and ask me about the 1979 Daytona 500 because that sure. was another seminal deal that I was heavily involved with that changed uh, the entire sport of auto racing. Uh, with respect to basketball, uh, we were looking in the late 1970s to grow CBS Sports. We were the number three sports network. We were well behind ABC, which uh, had the leadership of the most important person in sports television history, uh, Rune Arledge. Uh, he set the standard for just about everybody in the business. But the reason ABC Sports was so prominent and so dominant was because the ABC network was a bad number three among the three competitors. CBS was clearly the number one network in terms of entertainment and news. And for that reason, they didn't have much room for sports. Uh, it was ABC that dominated sports in the 1960s and 70s because their entertainment programming was so weak. They had more time available and were able to put more money into sports, uh, and they became clearly the leader in sports television. Uh, my job, uh, among other things, was to find a way to improve CBS sports and, and get for CBS some of the events that were on the other networks. Uh, the first major acquisition, and I'll come back to this, was the Daytona 500, which we took from ABC, 
but we next uh, moved into the college football business. Uh, we prevailed on the NCAA to give us a college football package. Up to that point, it had been exclusively on ABC. Uh, bear in mind, uh, all of you listening to this podcast, ESPN is still uh, uh, quite, a few, quite a few years away from becoming uh, a major sports property. So we're dealing with three competitors, and we looked at the opportunity for college football, and we, uh, we got the NCAA to give us a package. Uh, this ultimately led to the very famous Supreme Court decision, which held that uh, the deal that the NCAA had with CBS and ABC was anti-competitive, and they threw it out and they changed entirely uh, the college football business. But that entry into college football gave us credibility to seek a position with the NCAA basketball tournament. Remember, first we're in football, and now we're looking to get into basketball. We looked at the tournament, and we felt that it had great potential and was not being fully uh, developed or exploited. We felt that we could put more games on television than NBC was putting. Uh, And we went to the NCAA, and we told them we'd like to put on the announcement show uh, that is going, that runs on the Sunday before the tournament begins, and that we would promise them all oh, about 50 to 75% more network coverage of the basketball tournament than NBC was giving them. And once we were able to do that in terms of programming, we were able to come up with more money than NBC was currently offering the NCAA. And uh, we went in and negotiated uh, in Chicago at the O'Hare Airport Hilton, I well remember it, a deal where, to our surprise, uh, the NCAA took the entire package away from NBC uh, and gave it to us in terms of broadcast television. I should point out that ESPN at the time had a, a... a supplementary uh, a package of games that were not on uh, broadcast television. So we, we said we would share with ESPN, but we would take over the package that was on NBC. And we made them an offer. Uh, I think it was, believe it or not, somewhere in the area of 50 to $60 million for three or four years. It seems like uh, pennies today but it was big money in those days. And a little bit to our surprise, uh, uh, the NCAA basketball committee decided that they would take a risk and uh, go with CBS. And that's how we got the tournament. It was hard work. It was uh, uh, looking at the economics very closely. It was, we got cooperation from our broadcast network, which gave us some time, uh, more time than, we had uh, that NBC was getting from its network, and uh, we took over the tournament in 1982, and we had a succession of incredible final games for the next three or four or five years. Uh, games with buzzer beaters, uh, Michael Jordan scoring a winning basket in the first tournament. Uh, we had tremendous upsets. Uh, 
and uh, we had Georgetown. We had a whole range of uh, teams that uh, became what we call Cinderella winners of the tournament. And it has proven to be uh, perhaps one of the most successful television sports events uh, in the history of our business. And uh, I guess I was there at the beginning. Now, Neil, uh, talk about your, the relationship while you were there with the NFL, because obviously they've always been, continue to be kind of the crown jewel of sports deals in the, in the television world. So, so what was your experience with, with that league? Well, uh, frankly, the NFL at the time was totally dominant. Uh, they had uh, uh, packages on, they had Monday Night Football on, on ABC. Uh, they had, uh, we shared uh, the Sunday afternoon package with NBC. And while I was there, we had, I guess, three or possibly four renegotiations of our contract with the NFL. But to call them a renegotiation is a misnomer. The NFL was so dominant, they would tell us uh, what they expected us to pay. We would tell them that, oh, that's far too much. We can't afford that. And Pete Rozelle would tap his pencil on the desk and say, well, that's what we need. And if you uh, are not interested, we have other people that will take your package. And mm-hmm. so we'd go back to our office. We'd uh, cry a little bit. We'd go back to the NFL, and we'd say, it's really unfair. You're, you're, you're not being fair with us. You owe us a better deal. And the NFL would say, no, that's the deal we're offering you. Take it or leave it. And on each occasion, we would take it. And interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, on each of the occasions where we would tell the NFL that, oh, we can't make any money on the deal, guess what? We made money on the deal. Perhaps not as much as we would have liked, but the NFL had a pretty good understanding of network economics. And they basically dictated the, the number, and uh, uh, we just, uh, after a good deal of uh, uh, teeth gnashing and moaning, we took the deal and continued with the NFL. Neil, I'm, I'm curious. Back then, before Paul Tagliabue started, I believe in 89, you were dealing with Roselle. Who were the power brokers in the league among the owners? It was, was it similar to the way it, it kind of started to be in the late 90s where some key owners in the, in the television committee ended up getting a lot of influence and power? Or was, or nope. was Roselle working fairly independently? Roselle had one owner join him at the meeting, Art Modell. And that wow. was it. That was the negotiating committee. Art Modell, Pete wow, Rozelle, and their head of television, uh, a wonderful gentleman named Val Pinchback. And, mm-hmm. and that was the negotiating committee. There were no other owners. Towards the end, they would reference Jerry Jones from time to time. Uh, but Modell was, was, was basically the owner representative on that negotiating committee. Wow. Boy, have times changed, huh? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> um, Joe, did you want to um, did you want to have another question about CBS? Yeah, let's let's touch on before we move off CBS. T- touch on yeah. NASCAR because, <clears throat> as we know now, NASCAR is kind of plateaued as to where they are as a property. And frankly, Tom, I don't know how much it even comes up in classes with an international audience. It never does mm-hmm. in my class now. But right. but there was a time, and you know, 
for NASCAR to get where they are today, you were there kind of with Daytona um, to to kind of really literally jumpstart that that property. And, and so you had college basketball on one side, obviously some of the other things with the NFL that CBS was doing, but NASCAR was another one that you should obviously hang your hat on. So why don't you kind of walk us through that process, and then, Tom, we can go on to some of the other topics. Mm-hmm. All sure. right, I'll do that, but save save a minute and a question for the Masters because that was the other interesting property that CBS had then and continues uh, to have it today. Uh, I mentioned earlier we were looking for ways to upgrade CBS Sports, and the only way to do it basically was to either find new events to put on new sports events, and we had one that never worked out, and that was Formula One. I had several meetings with Bernie Ecclestone, uh, trying to get a Formula One package for CBS, but we were never able to do it. We could never get to an agreement with Bernie. But we identified uh, NASCAR, and particularly the Daytona 500, as an event that had never been adequately presented on television. Up to that point, the Daytona 500 and NASCAR events were put on a tape delay and run on ABC's Wide World of Sports one week or two weeks later. Uh, We had information through Ken Squire, who, by the way, uh, will uh, soon join the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, We had information that Bill France, who was the head of NASCAR, was very interested in putting the race on live. Uh, Keep in mind, it it was being put on tape delay a week later in half-hour segments. They would put the race on for a half hour on tape. Then they'd run a a ski event from Europe on tape. And then they might run uh, uh, some other program and then come back at the end of the hour and a half or two-hour show with the final of the race. And that was Wide World of Sports, and that was the number one show on television. But nothing was live. So we went to Bill and said, look, what would it take to put the Daytona 500 live on network television, flag to flag, on Sunday afternoon, the day of the race. And he, he had already thought about this. That was the, the interesting thing. It wasn't that it was our idea. We had information that he wanted to do it. So we went to Bill and said, look, we'd like to do it, but we don't want to be, you know, have, give ABC the chance to match the deal. So we said we'd only do it if Bill agreed to do it with us and not shop our offer. Bill agreed to do it with us, and we made the deal right under the nose of ABC Sports. We took that property away. We showed the race live on, uh, in 1979. There was a huge snowstorm in the Midwest and Northeast that day. We got our 10 rating which at the time was extraordinary for NASCAR. And uh, it was front-page news on the New York Times the next day because at the end of the race, there was a fight between uh, Cale Yarborough and and Donnie Allison. Uh, We caught that at the end of the race on television, and it was just an extraordinary event. Uh, And we just happened to capture it. We, we We struck gold with our telecast, uh, this is keep in mind. This is before we had in-car cameras, so it wasn't the kind of telecast you would recognize today. But uh, it was uh, engaging. Uh, we had great uh, uh, production 
qualities. We spent a lot of money on it, and it was a hit. And we continued with NASCAR at CBS, frankly, throughout my uh, my period at, at CBS. All right, so before and the, we only move other, to some... the only other sport I oh, just I'm wanted to mention because I was involved with that was Masters. Masters Golf, which is the highest rated golf tournament year after year. And we negotiated during the period of time I was there, and I believe it continues, one year deals. That's all we had year after year after year. And uh, the Masters organization was happy with CBS. Uh, my my people wanted me to get a three-year deal or a five-year deal. And I kept resisting that because I said, if we ask for that, they're going to go talk to our competitors. But as mm-hmm. long as we have one-year deals and they're comfortable with CBS production and we were the best golf producers, uh, let's just keep to the one-year deal. And for 20 years, I negotiated one-year deals with Augusta. And CBS still has that event. Wow. Who were your who was the key talent for you back then at CBS Sports uh, our on, producer, on, on Frank, golf? Well, our producer was Frank Chukinian. And he was just as Rune Olage was acknowledged to be the best uh, uh in sports television, Frank was widely acknowledged to be the very best in golf broadcasts. And we actually arranged for Frank to live in Augusta. So he had day-to-day contact with the head of Augusta National. And uh, I used to go down there every year and negotiate a one-year deal. They were very comfortable with that. They were comfortable with us. We were happy with them. And, frankly, the the deals were not as expensive as if we had to go and bid uh, bid out against other competitors. So that relationship continues today. I think it's now close to 50 years where CBS and Augusta National have been televising the Masters every year in April. Yeah, I just did a quick search on that, Neil. It actually dates back to 1956, which I had no idea. That's incredible. So 60, uh, it'll be 62 years this spring. All right. Well, I inherited that in 1976 and then continued for 20 years to 1995. Wow. Incredible. Anyway, let's let's uh, move the clock ahead a little bit. I, I'm curious about one facet of your career journey that Joe and I can relate to. So, at, at in 1995, when you left CBS Sports, you transitioned from being a corporate executive at a high level to creating your an independent consulting business. And Joe and I have done similar, um, having left uh, corporate jobs. Tell us about that transition, and tell us kind of what you had to go through and what you learned in the process of leaving the cocoon of of corporate life to start something more entrepreneurial? Yeah, big, big change. Uh, As head of CBS Sports, you have 200, 300 people working for you. Uh, If you want a piece of research, you just ask somebody to do it. If you want to make a travel plans, you ask somebody to do it. If you need something typed up, you ask somebody to do it. Uh, if you want to uh, uh, schedule a, a meeting, you have somebody do it. And then you leave CBS and you basically have to do all of that yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, it's a dramatic change. And one of the things I've always enjoyed about sports television and, and working at CBS and, and, uh, is the fact that, and this is part of my leadership course as well, 
is that good executive leadership is a team-oriented sport. Uh, it's not something that individually uh, you can make all the decisions, you can make all the uh, plans that you run everything. That's not how it works. You have to be able to delegate responsibility. You have to be able to uh, work with other people both below you in terms of your staff, and just as important, you have to relate up to the people that you work for. Uh, when you work alone, all of that is combined in one person. And it, takes, it took time for me to understand that I, was a complete, I had a completely different lifestyle that I had to learn uh, as compared to working at CBS. At CBS, I had access to the company plane. Uh, when we had a company plane, we, we did get rid of it. I had a car and driver, which is a nice, uh, uh, nice little perk. Uh, I had several people working directly for me. And then you leave all that, and all of a sudden you're alone in your office. Now, I did bring my assistant with me, but from, I went from running a group of 200 to 300 people to running a, a large group of two. And <laughs> that, is, that is a significant lifestyle uh, change that it takes a little getting used to. But let me yeah. give you a wonderful story, and it relates back to my relationship with Bill Plants. When I was working at CBS, and remember I mentioned this, every three or four years we'd have to renegotiate our basic deal for the Daytona 500, and we had picked up several other races, uh, the Talladega race and others. And Bill would come in and say, look, uh, you're getting great ratings. I really need a lot more money uh, for my sport. And I tell Bill, geez, Bill, we really love your product, but, you know, the northern stations are having trouble selling NASCAR right now. Uh, it's perceived as a southern sport, so I can't really offer you the kind of money you're looking for uh, we got to make it a deal at a much lower number. And, and Bill would reluctantly agree. Three years later, he'd come back and he'd say, hey, we're going great. We've got more races. Uh, ratings are still good. i say, yeah, yeah, our stations are doing well, but the economy has really tanked, Bill, and we just don't have a lot of money for any of our sports product, and I just can't offer you the kind of money you're looking for. And then the third time he came in, I had to go through the same story. I love you, Bill, but I just don't have the money you need. So I leave CBS. I call Bill, and he says, great, I want to hire you to be my television consultant. There's no conflict of interest. I'm free to do it. Uh, and he says, I want you to go back to CBS and get all the money that you've been holding out on me for the last 20 years. <laughs> and I said, there's more. And I said, Bill, I'd love to do that. Uh, so Bill was my first client. Uh, wow. And good one, a good one about, to get. And about four months after uh, I left CBS and uh, I had uh, signed an agreement to be consultant for Bill, we went back to CBS to have our every three- or four-year negotiation. The new CBS sports president was a really good guy named Dave Kennan, who uh, was a good golfer, uh, knew a lot about the stick and ball sports, but I don't think he had ever been to a NASCAR race. He had no idea if the cars turned left or right. Bill and I went in and sat down in his office. I looked at him across the desk. I said, Dave, 
CBS has been screwing my client for 20 years, and it's got to stop now. And Bill banged on the desk, and we stared at Dave, and, and then we laughed because, you know, it was really, we weren't being unpleasant. And we ended up making a very nice deal for NASCAR. But uh, the idea that once I left the network, I was free to turn around and, and represent some of the properties that we had been dealing with. There was no conflict of interest. I was perfectly okay. And we went back and got a much better deal for Bill than I was ever able to give him when I was president of CBS. Amazing. Um, you know, in the time we have left, you've obviously seen the the evolution of where the media landscape is, especially in sports today. Um, what has surprised you the most and the least in terms of where broadcast is today and how people are consuming media, especially sports, live sports? All right. I have always believed that sports is a great gathering place for the American public that sports on a Sunday afternoon uh, or a Saturday night is an opportunity to uh, get involved in, a, in an event where nobody dies, uh, nobody loses uh, uh, their job, uh, there are very few tragedies that are occasionally, but you're able to, to walk away from the cares of, of everyday life and for two hours or three hours, you're there with people that you may not have anything else in common with, but you're there to root for your team and to enjoy the sports event. So I am not surprised that sports continues uh, to this day as a great gatherer of people in relative good humor, uh, a, a, an opportunity to bring the country together, for events like the Super Bowl or the Final Four or the World Series. And even though the world can be a dark and forbidding place, sports remains a beacon of enjoyment, a beacon of, of, of fun and hope. And this is why I think today sports uh, is, continues to be uh, a very uh, profitable and very widely viewed uh, form of television uh, and keeps and people keep coming back to uh, watching these events. Look at the great ratings that the uh, uh, the, the championship, the football championship game got. Mm -hmm. Look at the terrific mm -hmm. ratings that uh, the NBA is getting. And frankly, the NFL ratings, while they are down from prior years, as is all uh, television ratings, frankly, given the proliferation and the number of options available, Still, uh, if you want to reach the American public, reach the sporting people, uh, you buy into sports television. So uh, I am not surprised that sports continues to be uh, a great uh, gatherer of, of audience. Uh, I am surprised at as how large it has become. Keep in mind, I started out with there were three competitors. ABC, NBC, CBS. If you didn't get on one of those three, you didn't get on national sports. There was no other option, no other choice. Now you have hundreds, if you count over-the-top uh, 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 signals, hundreds of opportunities, perhaps even thousands, to watch sports events. 
and the public is doing that. But still, uh, sports remains a, a very saleable commercial property uh, because of the commitment that people have to watching sports. So on the one hand, I'm not surprised that sports is as strong as it is. On the other hand, I am surprised that it continues to be strong, notwithstanding the multiple platforms that currently uh, provide sports to, to our audience. So, Neil, regarding those multiple platforms, the, the, the nature of distribution is shifting more quickly, more dramatically than I think even a lot of the experts predicted a few years ago, partly because of the just uh, different fundamental media behavior of young people, particularly Gen Z and younger millennials. And so over the last few years, we've seen a bunch of the Silicon Valley behemoths get involved in different ways. So Amazon with Thursday Night Football and Facebook with a few different initiatives, Twitter obviously streaming everything from PGA Live to WNBA. Do you think the challenge right now for the legacy media businesses is um, to figure out a way to evolve with the changing landscape and stay in the game or ultimately uh, to fend off what seems to be this encroachment from these extremely wealthy uh, and large and highly influential businesses out West? Well, it, 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 it's both. Uh, they need to, and, and then I think ABC, Disney, uh, ESPN is doing that. Uh, they need to reach out and develop their own uh, digital platforms so they can, they can, reach the largest possible audience with with their programming. And not only the programming itself, but all of the supplemental and ancillary, ancillary programming that goes along with televising, a, you know, a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game. At the same time, uh, they probably are going to have to deal with, but I think it's more importantly the sports industry is going to have to deal with, the cash available from uh, digital platforms, the Netflix, the Googles, the Facebooks, mm -hmm. and so forth. The, the interesting thing is that that audience uh, on the digital side is not as easily defined or reached as the audience on the linear side. And sports is going to have to make a difficult decision and it could happen as early as Thursday night football, where an entire package, and this has not happened yet, an entire package is lifted away from linear television and put on the digital platform. Frankly, the only reason to do that is for cash, because your audience on the digital will not be as easily measured, it will not be as easily sold, and it will not be as easily defined as your audience on linear cable or broadcast television. So the, the, once you take Thursday night football off, or if you take Thursday night football off a uh, combination of, of NFL network and one of the broadcast networks, uh, you're going to have a harder time figuring out who's watching. Uh, you're going to have a harder time measuring the impact. And you may find, which is true today, that the digital audience is far, far smaller 
then the linear audience. Now, the digital carriers can afford to pay, but I, I wonder if it is a wise move for a major sport to take an important full package, not an ancillary deal, and take a full package and turn it over to a digital platform because all the evidence today is the digital platforms are reaching 5 or 10% at most of the linear package. Uh, and you can say, well, what happens if they have it exclusively? But the digitals, uh, you can't measure their audience in Florida or Texas or California the way you can the linear side. And uh, I have a, a little analogy I can give you. A lot of the sport took more money to go to cable on Fox and NBC. And now we're finding that their audience levels have dropped significantly, NASCAR being the best example. They got the money from cable, but they didn't get the audience that they were getting from broadcast television. And now the sport is in a bit of a disarray. So I am cautioning the major sports properties to think twice before they take a present important sports package and take it entirely off linear television and put it on digital. Uh, I think it could have a negative impact on their audience, uh, total audience, and it, it could be a uh, not as, not as uh, uh, beneficial to them as they think it might be, even though for sure they'll get more cash. Yeah, you know, let me, if, if you don't mind, let me just be devil's advocate for a second on this measurement question. Because I think based on everything that I've read and studied about the measurement elements in some of these digital businesses, and we've got the, the, the mother of all measurement companies, Amazon, leading the charge right now in this, the, the measurement can be done so deeply and, and so um, extensively right now uh, for example, you, you mentioned the thing about a, a viewership in a certain state. Amazon knows who's watching the Monday Night Football stream in Florida. There's no question they know that. They know who's watching it in Miami versus Tampa. They, they know more than I think any of us can even imagine because they've got all this data. It feels to me, this is my devil's advocate point slash question, but I'd love to get your opinion on this, is that it's almost as though – the industry doesn't really want to know that measurement because in the digital realm, all those ads, which are the lifeblood, the economic lifeblood of the entire business, are at risk because they can be skipped or ignored really easily, which is not – I mean, it can be done on television, linear television, but not quite as easily. Um, and that would be a really hard piece of feedback to deal with if you're out in the market selling $400,000 30-second spots. I mean, look, you know this well, business better than, than any of us, so I'd love to get your opinion on that. Well, actually, you're, you're mentioning the problem. Uh, yes, Amazon knows how many people are watching in, in Miami or the state of Florida, but I think I would surprise you, or you probably are well aware, that probably their audience is much, much smaller than the audience that's watching that would be watching on a network or ESPN or a major cable channel. Now, maybe you can identify your audience, but the fact is it's going to be considerably smaller. And if a small TV audience 
eventually has an impact on the economy of the sport. And I would suggest to you NASCAR is a good example. They, they reduced their audience dramatically when they moved uh, a lot of their product to, uh, to cable. Uh, then you find that there's diminished interest in the sport. Let's take Amazon. How many prime uh, subscribers do they have right now? I've seen various numbers, but in the 60 million it's, area? No, no. Actually, worldwide, it's about 105. I, I think uh, uh, in the 90s right now, worldwide. Uh, I was thinking so, Netflix, Netflix allegedly has 104 or 5 million, and Amazon Prime, I think, is either 70s, 80s, or 90s. It's smaller. Um, you're talking so domestic or worldwide? Worldwide. All right. Well, I'd suggest to you that made that might be 23 people in Miami. That's true. Or 230 That's people true. in Miami. See, right. here's my point. Uh, maybe you can measure their, you know, who they are and who's watching, but the numbers are going to be dramatically smaller. Uh, if you took Thursday Night Football off a network, a CBS or an NBC, and put it on Amazon, I would suggest to you Amazon may generate one-tenth or one-twentieth of the total audience that's watching on a broadcast network. Now, you might mm-hmm. get more money from Amazon. I'm not, I'm not saying you won't. But you're gonna, I think you're going to have to deal with a much diminished audience. And interesting enough, not necessarily a sports audience, because Amazon... Uh, doesn't have the reputation of, you know, the ability to promote Thursday night football right through its schedule. Uh, it's basically promoting to a much smaller universe. So sports could diminish itself by moving a major package off a broadcast or a linear cable channel and putting it on a digital channel. I'm not suggesting they would do it for less money. Obviously, they do it for more money. But the ultimate impact on the sport could be negative. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so two questions before we get to our wrap-up, actually, and then we'll, we'll get to our wrap-up questions. But the other side of that is, and you've worked with some either emerging or niche sports trying to lead them along. If you if you are working for a, an emerging property, whether it's um, – horse racing, lacrosse, rugby, um, drag racing, arena football, which way would you encourage them to go? Uh, and then secondly, just overall on the rights fees, Neil, we're, at, we're obviously, rights fees are, have not gone down. Do you think we'll hit uh, a spike at some point, even with the OTT companies in, where rights fees will level out and, and uh, leagues are going to have to go somewhere else to get more revenue? Well, let me answer that one first. The answer is yes. I think we're going to reach a point, and it's probably for a reason that uh, may not be too much in public knowledge, and that is that the last 20 years, the rights fees have been driven by new networks and new cable networks looking to build out their properties with sports. Uh, For example, the Big East basketball deal that I negotiated with Fox I didn't really negotiate that with Fox. Fox made the initial offer, a much larger offer than uh, the Big East might otherwise have generated, but they did it so they could grow Fox Sports 1 and grow it so that they had more subs and they had higher sub fees per month, and there was a, 
a very good rationale for buying up sports properties. And NBC did the same thing with NASCAR and with other sports, uh, paying incremental rights fees to help grow their assets, to grow an asset. You grow an asset, and you have it's like having another revenue stream because you're getting the benefit of, let's say, 10 or 20 million more homes and a higher sub-fee. That's over. Cable is built out. So that, that impetus, that uh, rationalization for throwing money at sports uh, seems to have diminished. Uh, also, we're seeing now, frankly, the cable industry shrinking from 100 million homes five years ago to 87, 86 million homes today. Uh, and we're seeing uh, sub-fees probably leveling off, although there's still come some question as to what ESPN is able to negotiate. Uh, and they don't negotiate alone. They do it with the Disney package. So uh, I, I think we are going to see uh, a, a slowing down in this increase because I don't think, I think the major television networks are prepared if, if the NFL wants to take a package to double and put it on Amazon, I think CBS would say, go with, go with God, good luck. And so would ESPN. I think, I think they're going to focus on the properties that are of critical importance to them and that they're not going to be chasing uh, and, and, and creating the kind of competition uh, for, uh, for events that we have seen in the last 30 years. I think each of them is going to decide what's really important, and they're going to try to stay with those events but not have a general upward trend in all sports rights. Uh, so that's a prediction. Uh, and uh, I, on the other hand, I, I really question what uh, an Amazon or a Netflix or a Google or Twitter or Facebook is going to do with a major sports property. What are they going to mm -hmm. do with it? Uh, I'm not suggesting they can't produce it. I'm not suggesting they can't get top-flight talent. Of course they can. But they're going to lose. Uh, the sports or, or, or organizations, the sports leagues, are going to lose a very significant audience by going off into the, the netherworld of digital. And uh, they may get more cash, but I think uh, you know, sports like baseball, uh, sports that love the, you know, the generational audience of grandparents, fathers, and sons, uh, I think they're going to have a tough time rationalizing putting a major baseball package on uh, pick any one of them, Amazon. Now, they may say it, they got to do it for the cash, but uh, ultimately my concern is they will diminish the sport by going on a minimal audience distribution platform, even though they may get more money. Yeah. I think uh, before we move to the final question, I would just kind of put a pin on that point, Neil, by saying that it seems like the challenge, what you kind of hinted at, is that you have to – appease the traditional viewer base with the best possible delivery and consumption experience, which would be linear television, typically the best ones, the best typically watched on large screen, often high def, et cetera, but also acknowledge the fact that there's massive amount of cord cutting and cord nevering with the younger generation and find a way 
to penetrate their world to, number one, kind of maintain or, or build cultural relevance in their world and also kind of create a new type of consumption behavior which they're completely comfortable with with other elements of the right. entertainment industry. So YouTube video consumption, Netflix, TV shows, whatever. So it's, so it's again, a training exercise in the consumption experience that's going to be harder to do. So it feels to me like we're going to a, a kind of a hybrid solution over time where the mainstream audience will have similar experiences in the past, but kind of like what just happened with the G League and alternative production values on Twitch uh, and the NFL experimenting with Skycam, the Madden View on Thursday Night Football, that in the digital realm, they'll figure out ways to make it more enticing to build those numbers. Because you're right. Because ultimately, if they don't get the numbers, they, they, they don't have the big business. All right, let me give you – I, I know we're running past 45, and you're probably going to have to edit this, mm -hmm. but let me tell you a quick story. <laughs> right. because right. You're making an assumption. We're all making the assumption that the millennial behavior that, ex, that is being exhibited today is going to continue forever. And let me suggest to you that when our dear millennials have two children, uh, three cars, a house, a mortgage, are commuting an hour each way, uh, that it wouldn't surprise me if they morph into the generational patterns that exist today for those of us who are 40, 50, 60, and 70 years old. That I'm not persuaded that the texting and the, uh, all of the millennial so-called activity, the podcast, the fact that they want to see things in three-minute versions, and when they get home at night at, and, and the kids are beating them up, and they're tired, and they turn on their 80-inch TV set, I have a suspicion they may just want to watch the football game and not watch the red zone or the highlights. And so mm -hmm. I'm questioning where the millennial behavior, which everyone is treating as a sea change and will never change, will, will continue as long as millennials are alive. I'm saying by the time millennials get to be 40, 50, 60 years old, I'll wager that their viewing patterns change to the more traditional patterns that exist today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we'll take that. We'll, we'll have to do a side wager on that and, and compare notes in uh, 2032 yeah, or something like that. Yeah, do you want to uh, uh, start wrapping with a yep. couple of questions? So, so the two questions we'd love to get, especially um, given the audience that we have, Neo, is how do you stay re uh, con uh, relevant and up-to-date with everything that's going on, especially since you're in the consulting business? And then the second piece, because we do have a lot of students who listen to this, is what's the one piece of advice that you give people uh, that probably hasn't changed, but it is something that, that resonates no matter what business you're going into? Well, the one piece of advice is, is uh, resilience. It is that getting into sports is, an, is not an easy proposition, that there are thousands, tens of thousands of young people out there who see sports as a wonderful way to mix their, their, the fun part of their lives with the business part of their lives. Uh, I don't know if, you know if you're aware of this, but there are 248, I counted them, uh, sports administration uh, mm -hmm. programs being offered 
in undergraduate schools around the country today. I added them all up. That was funny. In I, I, the last count I had was 235, so there's been another 13 since I looked, which is yeah. kind of scary. I, 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 <laughs> pretty, uh, so if, if the interest, your interest is in sports, uh, my only is, is you have to understand that there are lots of other young people similarly interested in sports, and they need to have, be, have grit. Have to have, they, they can't be uh, discouraged by the initial, any initial responses or lack of responses. Uh, and that I've encouraged them not to focus on sports at a tender age. I have great problems with high schools now offering sports management courses. And frankly, I have problems with colleges doing it. I don't have a problem at the postgraduate level, which is why I teach there, because my average, our average uh, student age is 27, 28, 29, and they're mature enough to understand the degree of difficulty in finding a, a, uh, a major position within the sports world. But uh, I don't encourage anyone from doing it. I just try to explain the probabilities and the risks uh, and the rewards of a career in sports. Uh, they just need to understand that they are in a very competitive situation. Now, uh, give me let's, that was the last point. Give me the yep. point just before that, and I'll address it. How, how do you stay current? Like you know, I mentioned before, you work uh, with properties big and small. How do you stay yep. informed of everything that's going on? Well, I sacrifice one part of my life, and that is reading uh, uh, escape material, uh, reading and, and doing things outside of sports. I read the sports business daily every day. I read three or four sports pages every day. I watch a lot of sports television, uh, not just the events, but the, uh, the shoulder programming. And uh, I try to, uh, to, to be as informed as possible because uh, sports opportunities come out of the it can, can really come surprise. I, I've had an inquiry, and I'm looking into uh, the world of darts, D-A-R-T-S, the sport of darts. Uh, <laughs> Premier League darts is a very big deal. So, it is a big deal. Certainly yeah. it is in England. I've watched the World Series of darts the last few yeah. weekends. Uh, so th- my point is, stuff comes to you. I'm, I'm involved possibly in, in, a, in, a post, in a preseason college basketball tournament. Uh, I'm working with uh, Barry Switzer and an Oklahoma businessman on providing uh, scoreboards free of charge to thousands of uh, Little League uh, fields around the country that do not have them, but we sell all the advertising on the scoreboard, mm. and we can make money that way just as we did with NASCAR and with college football. We did this at the same business where we supplied Sony Jumbos to originally to college football and then to NASCAR, sold that business to Paul Allen, and now we're looking at supplying thousands of Little League fields with scoreboards and video boards. Wow. So it's, uh, you look for business opportunities, you look for things that fit in terms of the national culture and the national uh, generational issues, and, and you try to stay, as you say, informed and relevant. That's really good advice. Uh, grit and resilience, two words we mention a lot in our conversations, Neil. So uh, thanks for reminding us all. Those are two key characteristics everybody needs to bring to the table. Um, 
Joe, any final questions, or shall I? Wrap no, I, I, we covered, you know, quite a lot, and and uh, you know, we certainly we will not, and Maurice, who's listening, in, will not edit this, so we're going to get everything in uh, because there were so many little jewels here that we don't want to make sure we leave on the table. But Neil, thank you for joining. Yeah, no, Neil, ter- terrific stuff, Neil, and, and look, this last part of the conversation about disruption in media has become one of our favorite topics. Um, seems like it's coming up, Joe, in almost every conversation we've been in because almost everybody in this industry has a version of this challenge right now, so it's fascinating to talk about it. And what's interesting is no one really knows where it's going to go. So I think that's one reason we're also curious, Neil, to get people's take on how they actually stay smart, keep up with everything. Well, I, so, I, seem to be, I seem to be the only one saying that I think millennial behavior will change as the millennials age and take on family responsibilities, increased business responsibilities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. I'll finish with this no, story. I... Fifty years ago, my wife and I went to Tanglewood, a music uh, concert up in, up in the Massachusetts area. We looked around. Everybody was 75 years old, and we said, this place is going to close in 10 years because everybody's going to die. Well, 50 years later, we're still going to Tanglewood. It's still open. There's still people there 50, 60, 70 years old. And my point is they, they came to Tanglewood at an older age. And mm-hmm. you know what? I think as millennials age, their patterns and viewing patterns are going to change, and they're going to look more like us 50, 60, 70-year-olds than like the 20-year-olds that they are today. Yeah. I, I think you raise a point which we can have another discussion about, just which which is probably one of the most important questions uh, societally as it relates to the proliferation of digital media and digital media time spent, and that is how is it really changing our culture? How is it changing society? How is it changing human psychology? These are big issues that are being challenged and addressed by all different kinds of organizations. As it happens to relate to sports, we're just starting to get a sense that it is disrupting things. But as you said, we don't know where it's going. So I think we'll make that side bet and compare notes in 15 years, and we'll see where we are. But uh, Neil Tilson, thank you so much. Everybody, we've been talking to one of the lions of the sports business, uh, Neil Tilson, president of uh, Tilson Communications, working with all different kinds of clients as a consultant and previously head of CBS Sports. And uh, and also uh, one of the key members of the Columbia Sports Management faculty teaching the leadership class. And, so Neil, good luck this coming semester. I know it starts next week. Good luck with that. Good luck with your assignments. And we'll have to have you back to get into uh, – to revisit that this thorny issue of the changes in the media biz. Uh, Joe, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bob. Um, and we'll see everybody on the next episode of The Cusp Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cusp Show at Columbia University.